Welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Max Frost, Max Tui, and Matt Winesett. Each week, we take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start bantering. Is there a Cold War between the United States and China? Just like 40 years ago, two nuclear-armed superpowers with rival systems and clashing interests are vying for international supremacy. Yet this time around, the United States opponent is also one of its top trading partners. Its students study at the best American universities, its tourists spend millions in American cities, its companies are traded on American stock exchanges. Meanwhile, as American companies make billions off the Chinese market, China is imprisoning its minorities, encroaching on Hong Kong, and stealing American intellectual property. Our guest today is General Robert Spaulding, who argues that all of this is part of China's stealth war, a strategy to challenge American hegemony via economics, diplomacy, education, and nearly everything short of war. General Spaulding served as U.S. defense attache in Beijing. He was the chief architect on the National Security Strategy and was a senior director on the National Security Council. He holds a Ph.D. in economics, and he's fluent in Mandarin. His new book, Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept, is out now. Well, as you can see, we have a lot to talk about today. Everything from China, economics, global hegemony, South Park, the NBA. We got it all. As a reminder, new episodes of Banter are available every week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It kind of changes by the week. I'm Matt Winesett. You just heard Max Tui. Max Frost did the monologue. Make sure you stick around to the end. We have a new segment coming up. But before that, let's get to the interview with General Spaulding. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. General Spaulding, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Can you tell us a bit about your background before we really get into this and talk about China policy? Yeah, I just retired from the Air Force uh, where I was a B-2 pilot, spent almost 27 years, uh, did everything from uh, work in the Office of Secretary of Defense, the Joint Staff, and uh, finished up at the White House as a Senior Director for Strategy. I'm currently at the Hudson Institute as a Senior Fellow. Really, though, it's part-time. I'm focused on um, you know the book that just came out and, and talking about uh, what I learned focusing on China the last kind of five or six years of my career. So can, can you say something? Before we just turn the mics on here, you're saying that you went to China, you had studied there um, in 2002. Now you're writing a book about how China's pretty much penetrated all aspects of American society, Western society, and is a massive threat we all need to be aware of. How did that transformation happen? Well, I mean, it was uh, it was actually a transformation that occurred over the course of 12 years. So I, when I lived in China as an Olmsted scholar, so I was a young major in the Air Force when I got selected. It's actually May of 2001, so right before 9-11. I got selected to go uh, study in Defense Language Institute to learn Chinese and then to go live in China for two years. Uh, and study at the Tongji University in Shanghai. So um, it was an incredible experience. I, you know, I by the time I got to China after studying for a year at the Defense Language Institute, I could uh, speak fluent Chinese. And so um, I hit the ground running. And you know, like all my neighbors in Shanghai were building uh, factories for Fortune 500 companies, and it was just a booming. I mean, there was skyscrapers going up everywhere. There was huge brand new malls, 
it was such a dynamic and, 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 and growing place and the people were friendly and I just loved it. I mean, it was, and my kids loved it. My wife loved it. We all loved it. In fact, I told my wife in 2004 when we left that, you know, as soon as I can get out of the Air Force, I'm coming back to China to live, uh, to live there. What was the American military perspective on China like at the time? Did anybody view them as a, as a rising threat or as a more sensing an opportunity? Well, I mean, so the reason I said uh, 9-11 is because, you know, when I went to China, all my, all my uh, colleagues went to, uh, went to Afghanistan and Iraq. So everybody else went to the Middle East. I went to China. So I missed all, as a B-2 guy, I missed most of the wars. Um, you know, I missed the uh, Iraq invasion. We, the B-2, my aircraft, was the first airplane to strike after 9-11 in Afghanistan. It's a 44-hour uh, mission with six air refuelings. And I was in China watching the, the show uh, along with the Chinese uh, 2002 to 2004 when we invaded Iraq. While my, you know, I have a lot of time and focus on China, you know, most of the rest of the military is focused on, has been focused on the Middle East for my career. Did you get the sense, though, that the, for A, that the people in China were more or less on the American side in, in these conflicts, and B, that the, I mean, and did the Americans think that one day China would be, or did you yourself ever see when you were there writing a book 15 years later, basically warning about the threat China poses? No, I mean, they, uh, they, they definitely weren't on our side. Um, there was a lot of discussion about, uh, if you remember the Iraq war, I think, you know, it was three, three weeks to Baghdad. But, you know, after the first week, they're like, oh, we're bogged down. We're not, <laughs> everything's going to collapse. Or, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to do anything. And then, of course, the Chinese were like, yes, yeah, so, you know, they're, they're completely in over the head. And then three weeks are over and like, oh, my gosh. But, you know. If you look at and 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 as I write in the book, the Chinese um, clearly uh, realized we had military prowess. This just kind of reinforced what they had seen in the first Gulf War and in the Kosovo War in 1999, where we bombed their embassy. They believe on purpose uh, that we were uh, this military juggernaut, and it just kind of reinforced it in their mind. Uh, that being said, that's not the way they wanted to uh, deal with us. So basically, your changing view toward China had less to do with your eyes opening up to what was already happening in 04, more like they just changed the way they interacted with the rest of the world and specifically the United States. It was more change on their end as opposed to a film being lifted from your eyes. Partially true. And, and you can see that with, um, particularly after 2008, the financial crisis, they start to kind of fill their oats. And of course, with the with the um, coming in of Xi Jinping, that being said, I didn't go back to China until 2016. So it was actually about 2013 uh, as I started to really focus back on China because I realized that the Air Force was going to, was thinking about sending me back. You know, they basically told me, hey, we, we'd like you to think about going back to be the defense attache. And, of course, there's a process to get groomed for that because it's a competitive selection. Plus, you've got to make a uh, general officer because of the general officer position. So um, so I started focusing on it again. But by then, uh, I think the, the thing that really changed for me is that I had a whole education going to New York City as a, a military fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. I got to meet all the, you know, investment bankers, hedge funds, venture funds, you know, industry captains that of the country, all people that I'd never met and learn a little bit more about how the country actually works and a little bit, you know, get away from the military uh, aspect of, of things. And so it was that, that process of 
understanding economically what they were doing uh, and also technologically. But then as I moved from the Council on Foreign Relations to the Joint Staff to be the advisor on China for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, really beginning to get a flow of data from New York now that I have these connections with the financial community and, and industry of what was going on between the two countries. And I began to realize that I'd been trained for combat in a, in a stealth bomber and we were seeing um, a completely different kind of competition that, quite frankly, I had never been prepared for. Luckily, I had now contacts that I could talk to about it. But, you know, when I go to my colleagues in, in, the, in the Pentagon in 2014, like nobody knows about global trade. Nobody knows about finance. Nobody knows about investment. Nobody knows about what's going on in Silicon Valley or our, in our research labs. All of these things, you know, at that point you know, we're beginning to uncover and uh, and with this data coming from New York into my shop in the Pentagon, we had a real opportunity to kind of look at a different aspect of China. And that's when I began also to learn about the Chinese Communist Party. You know, before, you know, I had no idea what the Communist Party was. Uh, I didn't understand China's government because quite frankly, I didn't study that. I just studied the people, the culture, the history and all that. So what you learned about China from your financial friends and colleagues in New York, the hedge fund people, generally the defense and foreign policy intellectual communities, they weren't so aware of some of the things you heard? Right, because they, they, yeah, because in our intelligence community was focused on the military right. capability of China. They weren't focused on what they were doing uh, economically, financially, trade-wise, in investment, you know, how they were using the immigration system, media, politics, the internet, you know, academia, all of these things that have subsequently come, you start to see these articles come out in the news. None of that uh, we were aware of. But now these are the same, you know, hedge funds, investment banks, whatever, who are making billions of dollars off right. of China. So, I mean, when they're talking to you, are they saying, look, we're trying to do business there. We can't pass this up. Or we're getting screwed in the process. Or what was kind of the pro what were they telling you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good synopsis, right? Where we're you know, on the one hand we're stuck, and the, on the other hand, you know, this is what's happened. Of course, I can't go out and say that publicly because it's going to affect valuation, um, or the Chinese are going to some come out uh, somehow come back and and punish us for 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 speaking out. You know, the Section three hundred one investigation that the Trump administration essentially started could be started by a company, but no company was willing to come forward and say, hey, I, I want to uh, I want to um, press for a Section 301 investigation because essentially I've been, you know, had my business taken from me. General Spaulding, one thing we've talked about here, and Max, you, you certainly brought up this issue before, is you talked about the many different aspects of, of Chinese, China's operation sort of in their expansion. And one of them you said was academia. And so, Max, you've talked a lot about the issue of Chinese students coming to America University in increasing numbers, and we're becoming increasingly reliant upon them. Yeah, which is something you, you touch on the book, and I think you get you give the exact number in here. I want to say ten, you say ten billion dollars a year, something like fifteen billion in a year, yeah, in tuition, which is amazing. I mean, I'm in a master's program here in D.C., and I mean, I have classes that are majority Chinese, and I can imagine the program wouldn't even. This is at one of the top universities in the right. state. I'd imagine the program wouldn't even exist without Chinese students. On yeah. the other hand, can you talk briefly, what do you see some of the risks? in a So there was a, actually a decrease in, in university funding, you know, and uh, this particularly happened after after the end of the Cold War and particularly as, um, you know, the financial crisis and recession. And, of course, Chinese students started coming in uh, by the drove. So that's how the university system compensated was by bringing in all these um, all these 
kids. I mean, the, the, the challenge with all of these students is that they're not coming here to um, learn our values or our principles um, because primarily since the Tiananmen Massacre, the Chinese have implemented, you know, mass indoctrination through education and, and media and the, and the Internet. And in fact, when they come over here, they're, they're tasked to watch each other, um, you know, with support from Confucius Institutes, Chinese Student Associations, and the, and the consulate and embassy. I, I think there was a Financial Times article recently, too, about how Australia is facing a similar problem where they have – their universities are utterly dependent on cash from the Chinese because right. international students pay more. But isn't this also something that we should want where isn't there a hope that we bring – Chinese students over to America and they see our values and our culture and they view us more favorably and then they go back to China and can affect positive change there. Well, I mean, that, again, that's the uh, that's the belief. But uh, there's a good article in New York Times, uh, a girl named Lian Yu who comes over, is in our system, and then begins to realize how much she's been programmed by the Chinese Communist Party and goes through this process of deprogramming and, and really references a book written by somebody that's held hostage by one of these, you know, isolationist groups here in the United States and and their story of deprogramming. So she likens what had to happen for her. People don't understand how closed the Chinese system is in terms of understanding what's out there and even understanding their own history. And, and so there is a level of, you know, these, these students don't really have an understanding and or appreciation or want to have an appreciation because they're told, they're warned. If they become too Americanized in America, then they won't find a job when they come back. And of course, there's a per people's armed police uh, and there's a ministry of state security that's uh, there to go visit their parents' homes if they find out that their kid is becoming too Americanized. So, I mean, it's, it, is a pro, it is a process that the Chinese Communist Party went through after Tiananmen Massacre to make sure that they had control of the narrative both within China, but also when their people went out of the country. I think it's amazing what America overlooks about China because of some, for economic reasons. And you look recently in the press, obviously something that a lot of people fortunately spoke up about was the NBA issue and the Houston Rockets general manager su expressing support on Twitter, you know, excuse him for the Hong Kong protests. And all of a sudden there's backlash about the NBA. I mean, these are basic. It's not like a jump ball, 50, 50 gray area issue, the human Great rights. Metaphor. <laughs> yeah, the jump, jump ball. And these are obvious human rights violations and in something where if it were anywhere in the western hemisphere it would be a no-brainer for the nba to condemn but all of a sudden it's it's quiet and in fact he ended up being the one loser out of all this like how do you explain that i mean i just find well i mean I, so i i think when um you know when i explain to people in the military it's it's really tough because we have been trained to dominate the battlefield you know clausewitz says war is politics by other means jomini talks about applying mass at the weakest point and duhay says do it with do it from the air. You know, I'm an airman. Mm -hmm. um, of course, uh, if you look at Sun Tzu, uh, Art of War, it's a book about anything but war. In fact, war is a last resort. And if you go to Mao's People's War, it's really taking Clausewitz's notion of war is politics by other means and turning it completely on its head and saying politics is war by other means, right? So it's about taking political um, struggle to the, the population. The great thing about globalization and the internet is not only can you take it to um, your own population because you have a big firewall that's, that's, that's almost a bastion for, you know, the, the party, but you can also deliver it right through, right into the veins of democracies and the NBA is a great example.
I've heard you mention too elsewhere the case of the a Marriott employee. Right. Can you talk about what happened there. Yeah. So Roy Jones, a mid-level employee at the Marriott Corporation, likes a tweet about Tibet, and the Shanghai Tourism Bureau finds out, and Chinese Communist Party calls Tibet or Marriott and says, "Hey, um, fire the guy and, and apologize," and they do. So. Maury didn't get fired, but Roy Jones definitely did. And I would venture to say there's probably a lot more people like that than than people really care to pay attention to. Of course, uh, Mercedes-Benz, Tiffany's, Cathay Pacific. I don't know if you remember the CEO ended up having to step down rather than give up his employees that were marching in, in Hong Kong. So this is going on. And my the the point of you know why does uh, America dominate the battlefield? Well, it's for a political outcome, like Milosevic in in Kosovo. Well. If you don't have to dominate the battlefield because your uh, opponent is willing to basically sell themselves out to you, then that's a much less riskier thing to do in terms of generating geopolitical outcomes, but also it costs you less. We're spending $800 billion on defense, and they can really come in and say, and oh, by the way, have a profit-making enterprise, right? So it's a mutually win-win situation economically, and then it just costs you less. Uh, well, have you seen the South Park episode? Band, <laughs> oh, it's band, my favorite. Banned in China. It's my favorite. Uh, unbe- Love it. Unbelievable. I mean, amazing. I'm amazed that I, I, first of all, I'm so happy that I feel, you know, a PhD Air Force general makes me feel, so, watching that episode makes me feel so justified <laughs> in my adolescent years. So thank you, Jim. But for anyone who hasn't watched it, watch the episodes called Oh, Band those guys are brilliant. China. They're brilliant. They, they're <laughs> There, and all the things, the subtle things for, for people that know China that they get, uh, is really amazing. I thought. Uh, one, what, yeah, I could talk about that forever. But one, <laughs> one other thing I want to say though is, so in the book, you essentially go through and you have all these different ways where China has penetrated some aspect of you know of America. Yet the other thing you kind of take away from it is that even though for all the hype about China, America is still the most dominant economy, still the most dominant military, still the most dominant academic system. So. It seems to me that, you know, the book is very concerning and the points you the points you raise are very concerning. On the other hand, it makes you realize that we have a tremendous amount of leverage over the Chinese over China, over still the world economy. Absolutely. And we need to use it. We so, need to use it, absolutely. And in, in, in defense of our own freedoms. And I think that's the point in the national security strategy too, is the first meeting we had. You know, what what's important to us? Well, our, it's our principles that's important. And what's happened in in uh, in geopolitics is we've gotten away from essentially asserting our uh, principles in the international order. In fact, because our foreign policy became open, more open markets lead to wealth and wealth leads to democracy, that if we just talk globalization, democracy will reign. And of course, if you look at the vote in, in the UN just two weeks ago, 54 countries sided with, with China over Uyghurs in concentration camps. Like, you know, where did that, where did everything go wrong? Well, everything went wrong because essentially we let uh, corporate America go out and, and, and mortgage our freedoms for profits. And quite frankly, uh, the Chinese were more than happy to take innovation, technology, talent, and capital from the United States, repackage it in Chinese Communist Party ideology, and re-export it to the world. How pervasive, so obviously a lot of Fortune 500 companies have a tremendous interest in the Chinese market. But is this problem also affecting American politicians? Do American politicians also feel kowtowed to China? Absolutely, because the corporations donate to the campaigns. So the money that flows into the country from the Chinese Communist Party flows into politics, absolutely, without a doubt. And, and, and 
if you look at our political system today, it's not about quid pro quo. I mean, everybody wants to go see, well, you know, wh- what did they get? What benefit did they get out of this? It's not about generating a direct benefit. All they want us to do is adopt Xi Jinping's worldview, which is stay open for business so I can continue to raid the cookie jar and everybody will be happy. We'll keep, you know, scratching your back with fees for Wall Street or donations for politicians or, you know, stock options for for corporate executives. But at the same time, we're raiding out the country. We're taking all the intellectual property. We're taking all the manufacturing base and we're leaving a shell of of a nation. And so what I say in my book is that you know, the thing that saved America is the Constitution because the people rose up and they said, D.C. is basically signed, you know, D.C. and corporate America have signed on with the Chinese Communist Party over my own interests. And we need to reestablish some some boundaries between us and the Chinese Communist Party. I, I find the Marriott example so, so it's infuriating, jarring, infuriating, man. because you also see that this just uproar, this fuss about Chick-fil-A's philanthropic decisions in the past and if they don't align with the group or if they don't if they support a group that doesn't align with your views 95% or more you know there's uproar it's mega problem but all of a sudden you have tens of billions of dollars being invested from the corporate world into China and oh that's fine and I'm not saying you should have the same standards internationally that you have domestically but it's become so egregious in China that to turn a blind eye in a virtue signaling culture just seems very un-American, especially right now. And and I, I don't think your message is being fully appreciated. So yeah, you probably wouldn't say that to LeBron James. <laughs> no, I don't think I would either. LeBron, if you want to come on the show. <laughs> LeBron? No, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, if, if we're going to stand for something, but yet it is, if we get a profit from it, then we're going to basically, I mean, can you imagine Starbucks, you know, but they make billions of dollars in China. And so, of course, they're they're going to turn around when, and say nothing when three million people are put in concentration camps. Many of them for with death death sentences because they're they're basically put on these uh, organ uh, matching lists so to have their organs harvested. So it's as horrific as Nazism was. It's as horrific as Stalin's uh, Soviet Union was. But yet. Yeah, corporate America can't be bothered, you know, and this shouldn't be surprised because if you go back to um, Nazi Germany, there was corporations like IBM and others that were actually wanted to do business with with Nazi Germany. And, and it took, you know, a four year conflagration for us to realize and, and get to the, the, the death camps what was going on. But we shouldn't be turning a blind eye to it now. On the other hand, though, this is a it's a national security problem for the United States, but is it putting too much onus? It's not. It's not really the responsibility of U.S. business to look after or look after American security interests all the time. So, isn't this more of a problem with America's political class refusing to act on this, and not so much with the Starbucks CEO who does have a responsibility to his shareholders? They have a fiduciary responsibility, and that's absolutely right. And that's why you know when my colleagues in in government would would criticize businesses, you know, of course, I'm free to criticize all I want. But the but truth of the matter is, you're absolutely right. It's a they have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. It's up to legislators. It's really up to the government to set the the incentive system. What's okay? What's permissible? How do you make profit and actually still adhere to our principles? That's what we got away from. In fact. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of writing talking about how government is basically kind of 
took their their eye off the ball and let business do a lot of things that, quite frankly, aren't in the national interest. So you mentioned national security. You know, we lost over 70,000 factories from 2001 to 2017. We have the Chinese companies making circuit boards for F-35s. That's not in our national interest, but yet it is something that that absolutely occurs. I think, well, there's two things that strike me right here, though. One is that we have had legislation in the past, especially targeted against the Soviet Union, that prevented American businesses from doing business with them for human rights violations. And the other thing, I mean, even now, though, it's like the NBA is such a jarring example because it's not a public company. It's essentially a co-op of billionaires mm-hmm. who run these, you know, who, it's mainly billionaires own these teams. And just to get a bit more of this, I mean, it's not like the NBA is some ultra competitive sports thing where they don't go for the Chinese market, someone else. They have a one of a kind product. Right. There's, there's no no comparison. But I'm wondering, you know, in terms of in terms of a policy, what do you see? I, to me, I think the easiest one of the, one, something that's gotten so much attention recently and it's such a black and white case of just right and wrong is the Uyghur situation. So what kind of policies would you like to see implemented to deal with that? OK, so I, two things that I'm focused on. One is prior to uh, China entering the WTO, they had, we had a most favored nation trading vote, right? And in the most favored nation trading vote in the Congress each year, they looked at, do they have a market economy? Do they have human rights violations? Do they violate civil liberties? And if so, do we want to continue to have tariffs? What did that do for business? It meant that they couldn't have certainty about investment in China. They had to worry about what was going to happen in the Congress every single year. So in, at that time, there was less. their economy was, was less than a trillion GDP. So I'm about restoring most favored nation trading vote and, and to force them to actually become a market economy and stop doing human rights violations. And that will get corporate America to stop investing there. The other thing I'm looking at is, are we sending our retirement funds to China? Of course we are. What's wrong with that? Well, uh, as opposed to what the Wall Street Journal editorial board wrote in their op-ed, they don't have to adhere to audit or transparency standards of U.S. companies. So they can they don't even have to do a full 10Q and 10K that gets audited by um, and then uh, an auditor that gets looked at by the PCAOB. They can just sell you stuff that you have no idea what you have. So those two things. And then the other thing I'm, I'm, I'm focused on is just investing in our country. What we used to do is invest in basic science research and STEM education and in, in, uh, in infrastructure and industrial base. All four of those things are at historical lows. We're $5 trillion in arrears in infrastructure. Our industrial base already said we lost tens of thousands of factories. Our STEM education is in the toilet. You know, we used to send scientists uh, on grant federal grants for like the space race. And then basic science research, we were spending 2% of G- GDP on that. We need to start spending on our country. We're spending $800 billion on weapons. Those weapons don't get Greece to actually align with us. What gets Greece to align with the Chinese Communist Party is the Port of Piraeus and the fact that China is covering a lot of the Greek debt. So we have to look at how national security and geopolitics actually works in a globalized, internet-connected world. It's different. China does not want to go to war with us. We have nuclear weapons. They have nuclear weapons. It's not about war. It's about it's about everything else. How do we create a competitive advantage for our people and actually make your people actually less competitive because we take your technology, talent, innovation, and capital and repackage it and re-export it to the world using our own values? That's why 54 nations in the UN went with China because 
trying to convince them they have a better model. It's our model. <laughs> they essentially stole it. So one thing for you know people of our generation and as we've been taught, and rightfully so in, in large part, but we've been taught how important and good multiculturalism, globalism, thinking beyond the confined American paradigm. It, we've been taught all these things are so important. And so I think naturally younger people are not so receptive to this, America's great, China's bad. It feels very much like, no, this is America being greedy again, because we're very much educated on our wrongdoings of the past. Right. So it's kind of a losing proposition, your message for, for young people. Is there going to be- so, so, I mean, let me challenge that. Okay, so you would rather buy two carrier battle groups, which we get no geopolitical oomph out of, and take that $60 billion then to put it in STEM education or research and development or in, in building new Well, highways. General Spalding, you're talking to the three most enlightened millennials here. <laughs> so, no, no. I mean, I totally get that. But I think there is- It's about an opportunity cost, right? Yeah, it's not- and, and, first, and first of all, it's not about China. It's about the Chinese Communist Party. It's about a totalitarian regime. But really, it's about how do, that's, it's, that's how do we want to spend our money? Yes. Do we want to spend our money on things that actually give us- a vote at the UN, carrier battle groups don't do it, right? Factories do. For the cost of two F-35s, the DOD, the Department of Defense, doesn't make any of its computer servers. Neither does Facebook. Neither does Amazon. They get them all from China. For the cost of two F-35s, we could build factories that actually build those servers here. Now, what, who would benefit from that? People that would have jobs, and we wouldn't have to worry about, did the Chinese put some kind of technology in it? So, I mean, it's it's really about thinking about how you protect yourself, wh whether or not you, you agree that you want uh, America to be great or not. It's just, how do you spend your money? Like, do you go and just throw it away in, in a river? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. I also think the NBA controversy might have been a turning point even for, you saw even people in the very progressive press were just furious with the NBA for what how they just basically caved on free speech right. issues. So yeah. maybe we maybe we have reached a turning point. But I think we are out of time. Max, Steve, one more question. No, I think I think we're out of time. Okay. General Spotting, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Us. Thank you, General. Thanks, General. Thank you all for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the show. If you did, like, subscribe, do all the things people do. We're on Stitcher, iTunes. We are soon to be on Spotify as well. So that's good. Uh, another new, two new things to note tonight. One is that when you hear the music, there's going to be a new segment. Tonight, the segment is called Two East Take. We'll be getting into that shortly. Second thing, we're all standing at the microphone to bring you guys a bit more energy. This is something new we're trying out. We hope that you enjoy that as well. My one concern is you said we're about to be on Spotify. After this conversation today, I'm concerned that we're about to be on China's radar. It's concerning. I, I've, thought, I've thought about this before. How far do you have to go to not be allowed to China? I've visited China three times. And I'm concerned at one point, I mean, we're small fish, but I know academics are completely, completely shell-shocked. I mean, they can't do, they can't research all the topics you want to research now because they can't go to China. You have to go to China and do the research, but you can't say things and still go. If I were to buy a plane ticket tomorrow to go to China or apply for a visa, though, what type of process do you think? Do they run my name through a database to see if I come up anywhere? 
Well, no, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, I still know a lot of people at AEI who do some pretty controversial, not controversial, but research that wouldn't make China happy, and they still go periodically. But there's certainly some buttons you can press where they're not going to let you back. Hopefully, well, we don't. Get I hope one back. thing that we also distinguish between today was the big difference between the Chinese government, the Chinese regime, and the Chinese people. And, you know, it's completely healthy to object to the first while completely supporting the second. Absolutely. I mean, I can't agree with that anymore. So General Spaulding has a lot to say. The book. Smart guy. Smart guy. I enjoyed the book a lot. It's just not every day that you hear people getting that fired up over policy issues, which I think is kind of refreshing, frankly. Well, we do have one guy that gets pretty fired up about a lot of issues. And unfortunately, he's in the studio with us right now. Get ready for Tui's Take. hear a lot about the virtuous and noble side of American companies today. The big new trend being corporate social responsibility, CSR. But nobody's talking about the real CSR, China schmoozing responsibility. The Chinese market is simply too enticing for American companies to maintain their humanitarian standards. Why care about human rights abuses when you could be selling Golden State Warriors jerseys? Unfortunately, unlike a lot of American products, free speech is not buy one, get one free in China. Look, I'm not suggesting or I'm qualified to suggest that American companies shouldn't do business in China. But let's not play the virtue game at home if we're not willing to play the virtue game abroad. That's a hot take, Tui. It's not that hot. I feel like you say stuff like that all the time. Tui, I used to actually agree with you, but this episode, maybe it's just the devil's advocate coming out, but it's like I said in the interview too, it's not the responsibility of businesses to run American foreign policy. And if we don't want companies doing business in China, we have to pass a law to tell them not to. Otherwise, they are going to pursue their interest like we expect people to. And it's the same thing with, there's a great Charles Krauthammer column a while ago about the immigration debate too, where all these reforms about, I think, E-Verify, basically criminalizing companies for hiring undocumented immigrants. That is just putting the onus for the U.S. immigration policy on U.S. businesses. If we want to have a policy, it should be a federal policy that the government enforces. It's not the job of private businesses to run, to do the policy work that the government doesn't want to do. Well, if we just draw it to an extreme though, and we say this is Germany in 1937, and companies, American companies, were doing lots of business over there. They should not have been doing it. And yeah, sure, it is the government's respons- responsibility. But for the government to legislate where a company can and cannot do business with the second biggest economy in the world is extremely difficult. Look, I, by the way, I just want to say that I am not, I really don't think that companies should commercially disengage with China completely. I'm just saying if you're going to be so virtue signaling here and meanwhile in China, you're dipping into that honeypot where there are humanitarian undeniable crises. That just seems a little hypocritical. I agree with you there. I actually in college, I was supposed to go to a Bruce Springsteen concert down in North Carolina and then it got canceled because they had just passed that uh, notorious bathroom bill, what they were calling it. So Bruce pulled out because he wanted to boycott the socially conservative laws down there. And whether or not you agree with the law, that's Bruce's right to do so. But turn around now, and I don't want to blame Taylor Swift too much, but she just performed on International Singles Day in China. They're basically their version of Black Friday. Taylor, as far as I know, has not boycotted any states yet for passing laws she doesn't agree with. But this is the type of thing companies do all the time. 
Plenty of companies say they won't do business in Georgia if they pass this abortion bill. How about the NBA? The NBA wouldn't do the All-Star game in North Carolina because of the bathroom bill. Yeah, you're right. And then they'll go to China and, you know, they'll coddle, suck up to the Chinese government. They'll hold training camps in the Xinjiang province for all their Uyghur stuff. It's unreal. So this is the hypocrisy. But this is where... Well, I think, yeah, ideally you'd have some legislation saying here's what you can and can't do vis-a-vis companies and human rights. The fact is the American consumer is still so powerful. Why are we not doing anything? People should be, as far as I'm concerned, boycotting the NBA, saying, look, if the government's not going to step in, if you want to go and you want to come into our living rooms and praise China, James Harden said, I love, we love China. We love China. If you're going to do that kind of stuff, fine, do it. But consumers should step up and say, look, I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to turn off the TV. But I think American consumers, they love to talk about how noble they are. They only take the steps that are easy to take. Like they'll say, well, I do good every time I buy Tom's shoes or every time I buy one of these new hipster coffee cups and five cents go to some philanthropic cause. But they won't do it if it's all of a sudden, okay, now you're paying $15 more for your jeans. But that's why that's the, not what they But do. that's why the NBA is such an easy target. Click the channel. Change the channel. Bam. That's it. You're not going to see it. You can put on college basketball. You can put on football. If you want sports, change the channel and don't watch the NBA. Have you stopped watching NBA highlights? I, I have not watched a single NBA game all year. I didn't even know the Warriors. He didn't do this before. He, yeah, this no, was I mean, true I, before I, the I conflict. watched a lot of NBA last year. I will say this is not the main reason is because I lost the interest lost interest in the NBA because Golden State was so dominant. Now that Golden State's right, so I, bad, I, 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 I haven't been watching again. Mindset. I know you like TV ratings numbers. The NBA TV ratings, I made that up about it, by the way. <laughs> the NBA TV ratings are down significantly this yeah, year. Why, That's why not just you because Zion Williams, and you know what's funny? College football and NFLs are up markedly year over year. The NBA is a growing brand. Right when NFL disengaged with politics, ratings back up. Now, what do you do for the publicly held companies who they have to do whatever is in a shareholder's interest? I mean, that's it. And China is in every company's interest. So that's where the challenge really arises right there. You know, the NBA is... Unless you can convince them that they're such a dangerous regime that in the long term there's going to be inevitable conflict and problem, maybe that's the only case you can make. I don't think anybody believes there will be inevitable armed conflict, though. We both have enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world many times over. He inserted the word armed, by the way. I mean, there's trade conflict right now. Which uh, everyone wants to say, you know, he's killing Trump's killing the stock market because of, you know, uncertainty and all this kind of stuff. On the other hand, I mean, it's forcing companies to go elsewhere because they're so scared of the uncertainty of opening up new factories and investing in China. So to me, that's a win. I mean, you see, he said today, too. I mean, who knows what he'll actually do? I think it was either today or yesterday. He said, we may not even come to a deal with China until after the election. So that's to me, that's progress. I mean, this is not something we got it. We can wrap up right away. This is something that's going to take time. We got to deal with it. Yeah, no, it's going to require a several year, if not decade long U.S. strategy. I don't know if we are united enough across parties to sustain a long China strategy across different White House administrations. Well, I hope that decade long strategy process began in this studio today because I thought it was a productive conversation with General Spaulding. And the bottom line is I just there's just got to be more sunlight on this issue. Well, completely agree, Tui. Now, as always, we have to read a comment from one of our loyal listeners. We get to read a comment. We get to read a comment. You can also email us, banter at AEI.org, for any feedback you have. This is a comment we recently got on iTunes from International Relations Noob. They say, where are the ladies? I continue to listen to this podcast because I appreciate the guests and the array of ideas discussed, but I would love to hear more female thinkers and perspectives. I think the podcast could be greatly improved by a clever female co-host. I completely agree, international relations noob. We did have a great conversation with Kim Strassel a couple weeks ago, I thought, but 
Just stay tuned. We have a couple fantastic guests in the pipeline we're really excited about. And by the way, those comment sections are for you to suggest guests that you think we should have on anything else. I think that's a great suggestion. And yes, some of our best interviews in the past have been with women. Some of the best interviews in the future will be with women. And that's something we'll continue to prioritize. So send us an email, banter at AEI.org, comment, let us know who you went on, and we'll be happy to try and do that. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. We look forward to talking with you next week. Mm-hmm.